You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Psalms. Here's Nate. Well, in Psalm 128, we continue in the portion of the Psalms that deals with the pilgrimage of ancient Israel up to Jerusalem three times each year. And each song seems to have a theme or an emphasis that is connected to the pilgrim life and the perspective of the pilgrim. And it seems that the perspective that was required for those ancient pilgrimages it are also the perspectives that are required for modern believers, modern Christians, uh, to be able to live as pilgrims in this world, to, to be in the world yet not of the world, to be a sojourner uh, here on earth, to live the life of the disciple. And here today... We come face to face in Psalm 128 with the fear of the Lord, uh, to wonder at God, to be in awe of God. And so today we're going to consider that wondering at God or being in awe of God will lead us to a walk with God or in obedience to the Lord. And that obedience will lead to an everywhere blessing upon our lives. Uh, maybe a way to start this psalm would be to ask some questions and to ask which of us would like to experience God's everywhere blessing on our lives. Would we like to experience his blessing within our own soul, within our own hearts? Would we like to experience his blessing in key relationships around us? Would we like to experience his blessing as it pertains to our potential impact uh, upon other people, the way that we interact with others, the way that uh, we impress uh, others, what we impress upon them, so to speak. Would we like God's everywhere blessing through us on our city or in our church? Would we like to see God's everywhere blessing flow through us into the next generations and the generations beyond them partly as a result of the life that we have lived. Well, if we desire any of those things, this psalm helps us remember that it all begins with the fear of the Lord. That is the theory of this song. The theory of the wisdom of this song is that if you fear the Lord and follow him as a result, then there is incredible blessing that will chase you into every part of your life. And the question, of course, is, do you believe this? Do you share this concept? And the pilgrim, of course, does. So let's read the psalm together. It says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Now, 
I'm going to take this song basically in two parts. Verse 1 is the first part. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. And verse 2 through verse 6 is the second part. The results, the blessings of that come upon the life that is steeped in a fear of the Lord. So first, number one, the position or the attitude, the fear of the Lord. And then number two, all of the blessings that come from God as a result of fearing uh, him. Now, when it says there in verse one, the fear of the Lord, it is a semi-unfortunate word. It's a good word because, of course, it grabs us. You know, what does it mean to fear God, to fear the Lord? You know, he's my father. He's uh, my Christ has become the firstborn among many brothers. You know, we are family together. I've been adopted into the family of God. And so to fear God in that kind of terrible, apprehensive, full of anxiety kind of way just doesn't seem right. And of course, this word is not the way that the Bible, that's not the emphasis the Bible is trying to place upon it. One definition of fear is painful emotion or passion excited by the expectation of evil or the apprehension of impending danger, anxiety, alarm, or dread. Now, that is not the way that God has intended this word fear to relate to him. We aren't to have this paranoid feeling about our father in heaven. We're to be very secure in his love. But there's another way that this word fear is used. It speaks of a respectful reverence for, a reverential awe of. The Easton's Bible Dictionary says it is a fear conjoined with love and hope and is therefore not a slavish dread, but rather a, ph a filial reverence, it's just a tender care, a loving family love kind of care in the mi mixed with reverence. Synonyms would be reverence or respect or honor or esteem or awe. I like to use the word wonder. I hope it's not too flimsy of a word, but wonder in the sense of being overwhelmed with the awesomeness of God, wondering at at his power, wondering at his awesomeness. I think this is the attitude that Peter, uh, or the feeling that Peter experienced when after being commanded to go out and cast out his nets one more time, his boat began to fill up with miraculous fish from Jesus. And he came and fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. I think that he felt wonder at who he was before, wonder at Christ. One definition of the fear of God is to fear God, is to stand in awe of his righteousness, majesty, and power, and to trust him by humbly depending upon him. And this attitude to revere God, to be in awe of God, to fear the Lord, is the foundational attitude of the Christian life. Jesus unpacked this in his Sermon on the Mount. He began the entire sermon by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom 
of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What, what he speaks of there is an acknowledgement, not that I'm poor physically, although that might be the case or it might not be the case, but an, an acknowledgement continually of my spiritual poverty before God. This is not a confession of my insignificance or lack of value because before God, that is untrue. This is not shyness or introversion, you know, a suppressed personality kind of thing, but instead is a confession before God of my spiritual inadequacy because he is holy and he is righteous. And I realize that I need help from him, from an outside source to be able to pull me up into his presence. This person, the poor in spirit, sees himself or herself as spiritually needy before God. This comes from a fear of the Lord, a reverence, an, an, an understanding of the awesomeness of God. This is the attitude that Isaiah had when he said, Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He said that because he had seen the Lord. This is the attitude of David, who, after receiving the promises of God upon his life, was overwhelmed and went and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? This is the attitude of John, who, after hearing a little bit of the voice of Christ, turned and saw him. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet as though dead. The person who's poor in spirit has seen a glimpse, caught a glimpse of the living God. And in so doing, a poverty of spirit has rushed into their hearts, has rushed into their lives. And that becomes sort of the first step in many steps in the life of discipleship. Jesus would go on to say, blessed are those who mourn and blessed are the meek and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and blessed are the merciful and blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And when Jesus said all of these things, he was building upon that first and primary attitude of the poverty of spirit. My poverty of spirit leads me to a place where I mourn over sin within my own heart and sin within the world. My poverty of spirit helps me to become a meek person who is gentle and self-controlled before God, who submits himself to God and his will. My poverty of spirit helps me become hungry and thirsty for righteousness, to have a strong and fervent desire to increase in personal and practical righteousness within. My poverty of spirit helps me to become merciful, compassionate to others because I realize that I have been decimated by a holy and righteous and awesome God because he is in, he is in one position and I, along with all of humanity, am in an, another. And so I don't see myself as better than others, but I extend compassion and mercy. My poverty of spirit helps me become pure in heart, to have a, a desire for a purity of life because I'm, I'm longing for it. I see that I don't have it within myself. And my poverty of spirit helps me want to become a peacemaker because I want to bring people and God together through the cross of Jesus Christ. And I'll be able to endure, receive the blessing of going through persecution 
because I'll realize that I'm going to the Lord, that, that the kingdom of heaven is mine. So it all begins with this sense of awe, this sense of wonder, this fear of the Lord. Solomon, of course, taught us that it all starts here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, he said. And over and over again throughout the Proverbs, he taught us about the fear of the Lord, a reverence for God. And for us as modern believers, we must continually go back to the cross of Christ to a fresh marvel at who God is, to a fresh marvel at what God has done. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. There is to be this, this awe at the salvation that is ours and to work out that salvation. There's to be that sense of reverence, that sense of fear inside of us. So I encourage you, be a person who develops the fear of the Lord in your life, a, a real reverence for him, a, an awe of him. Now, some of the ways that you can do this are by continually being in the word, uh, continue, continually remaining in fellowship with him, continually confessing your sin before God. When you come face to face with your own limitation, your reverence, your love for God will be on the rise. It will increase. Now, he says there in verse one of the song that the result is that we walk in his ways. You know, this, this is synonymous with a fear of the Lord. To fear the Lord is to walk in his ways. Now, he goes on in verse 2, and he begins to talk to us about the blessing. That's, that's what had been sung in verse 1, is, is that there's a blessing. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Now, we come to those blessings. And... I want to enumerate them uh, rather quickly. First of all, we see that we are blessed within our own hearts. We're blessed within our own souls. He says there in verse 2, you'll eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Now, some of the blessings that are listed here in these next few verses are not the blessings that are promised in the Christian life. You know, things like uh, effectiveness in your work or a good wife or many children. These are very Israelite, old covenant in nature uh, blessings. I want to distinguish, though, that they are not carnal desires. Not at all. You know, the the Israelite passion or desire or focus of blessing wasn't wealth and prosperity and ease and all of that. No, he wants to work. Uh, he wants a good marriage, a good family. This is a simple world and a simple life. And I think we should not mistake it for the modern materialism that people often get wrapped up in. But in the old covenant era, that was one way that God would pour out his blessing upon the people. There, there would be these physical manifestations of God's grace, of God's blessing upon their lives. Now, it's not that the New Testament does not mention these types of blessings. It does. You know, Jesus said in Matthew six thirty three that when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
all these things will be added to us. And he was talking about, you know, our food, our clothing, our shelter. In Philippians 4, verse 19, Paul told the Thessalonian Gentile believer, or Philippian Gentile believers, he said, because you've been generous with me, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He was talking about material blessings there. So they are mentioned in the New Testament, but they are not the focus of the New Testament. And so our blessings are more spiritual in nature, which I think are the greater blessings. So the first one that we notice there is in verse 2. It's connected to the fruit of the labor of our hands and that it will be well with us. You know, there's nothing quite like this. We, we might eat, we might labor, but when the two come together and our eating is connected to our labor, it's an intense joy. And God here says, you know, that's what's going to happen with you. You're going to work and you're going to eat the fruit of your labor, of your work. You'll be blessed and it will be well with you. So the first area of blessing seems to pertain to the within us kind of relationship. You know, b before the blessing impacts those around us, our community, our marriages, our children, before it impacts any of that, it blessed the pilgrim individually. And this speaks to us of a of a internal contentment and peace that has come upon our lives. Now, some people obviously are always scrambling or are never at rest, never satisfied, and never have enough. They're always chasing some new job, some new career, some new high, some new relationship, some new thing. And sometimes the reason for that is because of a lack of peace, a lack of contentment, a lack of satisfaction within. Jesus, when he went into Samaria in John chapter 4, told the woman at the well that he could give her water, which would help her to never be thirsty again. That the water that he would give would become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She wanted the water, but was not really yet ready for the water. And so Jesus said, call your husband and come here. She said, I've had, I have no husband. And he said, you're right in saying, I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. She had chased relationship after relationship to try to find contentment. There was no peace within. But Jesus promised her a living water, the Holy Spirit, that could live inside of her and bring her that within level of blessing. And of course, now for Christians, we understand that when we become believers, the Holy Spirit begins to reside within us. And as the Holy Spirit resides within us, he begins to work on our behalf. We learn in Romans chapter 1 of seven different ways, or excuse me, Romans chapter 8, of seven different ways that the Holy Spirit uh, attempts to work inside of us. First of all, the law of the Spirit 
enters into us to fulfill God's law in us. In other words, the Spirit is pulling us towards righteousness. You know, right here, as you listen to this teaching, the Holy Spirit, if he is within you, he is, even though your flesh is there and we're imperfect and we stumble and fall, the Holy Spirit is pulling you towards a, an obedience to God. Also in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit creates the possibility of now a spirit mode in our lives. In other words, it used to be that all we could do was operate by the old man, the sinful nature. But now there's the possibility of not living by the flesh, but by the spirit. And that Christians are always at all times either operating in the spirit or in the flesh. But it's a joy to us to know that the, that the spirit mode is even possible. Also, the leading of the spirit leads us to kill that very flesh, to cut it off more and more. The spirit reminds us of our adoption, our radical position in God, even causing us to cry out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit helps to stir within us a hope of future redemption because he's inside of us. He's sort of the, the first fruits, the first reality, the, the, the first uh, redeemed thing because the Spirit is inside of us. So we have a hope of the complete redemption in the future. The Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 26 to 28, helps us by praying for what is best for us, interceding for us. And the Holy Spirit helps to conform us into the image of Christ, whom we've been predestined to be conformed into his image. And so there's this huge blessing inside of us, a peace within us, as a result of the fear of the Lord and God just saying, okay, you know, you feared me, you've, you're walking with me. And so here, I'm going to bless you within. He then goes on in verse three and talks about the wife being like a fruitful vine within your house. So if in the first blessing, there's blessing within, I think that this is blessing beside, you know, the pilgrim, a man, he looks at the key or closest relationship in his life. He looks to his bride. He was a married man. And he looks to his bride and God is saying, as you fear me, as you revere me, this person next to you uh, is going to be fruitful herself. You are going to positively impact her life. So blessing beside you. Now, I would like to think about this in just the relationship between the husband and the wife. In the, in the sense that these two are opposite. And what God seems to be saying is that, you know, here you have next to you this woman who, you're male, she's female. She's very different from you. Yet God, as you are fearing me, as you're revering me, as you're walking with me, I can bless that relationship with someone who is so extremely opposite from who you are. And the beautiful thing, of course, is that if God can bless that kind of opposite relationship, then he can bless so many 
opposite relationships. You know, I think one of the reason one of the reasons that people are head over heels, you know, infatuated with different kinds of sexual orientations and different types of, you know, relationships. I think one of the reasons is because for a lot of people it's easier. It's easier for you know a woman to relate to a woman or a man to relate to a man than for a, a man or a husband to relate to a wife, a woman. But what God is saying is that as you fear me, I can help you overcome those difficulties. Is it hard for you, husband, to be able to relate to your wife? Well, I can help you. Is it hard for you, man, to be able to relate to woman? Well, I can help you. Is it hard for you, Jew, to relate to a Gentile? Well, I can help you. Is it hard for you, rich, to relate to the poor? Well, I can help you. Is it hard for you, uh, slave, to relate to the free? Well, I can help you. God is able to, you know, help us in these relationships around us. And so first God deals within, but then you have the relationships around you. Not only that, but then he goes on to talk about the children. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Not only is God's blessing within you and beside you, but also behind you. The person who fears the Lord is a blessing to the next generation. And, you know, they have humility in that they're willing to listen to the next generation. They're not condescending towards them. They have love. In that they are patient and understanding and gracious and interested in the next generation. And they have faith for that next generation in the sense that they see something in them and they take risks with them. The person who fears the Lord has this kind of beautiful interaction with the up and coming generation. Then he says in verse 5, he says, and, and here's where it turns into a priestly prayer of sorts. He says, the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Here's where the blessings now come around you. You know, it's within, it's beside you, behind you, and now around you. You see, the cool thing about this part of the blessing of those who fear the Lord is that they are going to bless not just their own lives, but they're going to bless the community. They're going to bless Jerusalem. The pilgrim saw that his individual life impacted the corporate life and that the corporate life impacted his individual life. In other words, our walk and our church go together. They're to complement one another. And people who fear God, they bless their city and they bless their church around them. They make a positive impact upon the church or the congregation. And then finally, may you see your children's children, peace be upon Israel. You know, your children's children, that speaks of your, your fruits, fruit. You know, uh, grandkids, so to speak. And this is where I think it gets so fun in the Christian life is when your relationship with the Lord has impacted someone, but then that someone goes out and impacts someone else. That's where it's such a joy. 
you know, I love teaching the Bible and it's awesome to do so. But when I'm able to help teach someone else to teach the Bible, that's when I'm brought to tears. It's just such great joy to see that. And so hopefully we've noticed that in this life of blessing, it's really a life of giving. Blessing others around us, behind us, um, beyond us. And that's what Christianity is all about. It's a blessing that is not a taking kind of blessing as the world would think of it, but a blessing that is continually releasing and generous. God bless you. And amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.